BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, before we start the show, let's talk about our Amazon link for the holidays at bobseska.com. Whether you're shopping for yourself or if you're buying music by one of our excellent indie bands or if you're getting a jump on your holiday shopping without leaving your house, don't forget to use our Amazon link just beneath the logo at bobseska.com. Our special link will take you to the front page of amazon.com where you can go shopping until you're dropping and by doing so through our link... We receive a teeny tiny commission on some of your purchases. Thank you for shopping through our Amazon link. And now let the cartoons begin. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, November 6, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Whenever autumn rolls around, our thoughts and memories, or at least my thoughts and memories, often turn to the Kennedys. So today we're replaying my October 2018 interview with Helen O'Donnell, the author of Launching LBJ, based on the journals and tapes of her father, the late Kenny O'Donnell, Chief of Staff to President Kennedy. You might know Kenny O'Donnell's story from Kevin Costner's portrayal of him in the movie 13 Days. Well, we're going to talk with Helen about her book as well as her father's experiences working with the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. I tell you, I can't wait to listen myself. So join me today as we visit with the great Helen O'Donnell. I want to start out with your new book, which just uh, dropped yesterday. It's now uh, available to purchase. Very exciting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's called Launching LBJ. Um, By the way, I'm going to include the Amazon link uh, to your book in the description below this podcast. So if anyone wants to buy the book, just go right there to the the link just below this show, and you'll be able to click right over and pick up the book. It was such an honor to meet you the other day, Bob, because I... um, you know, it, it, we share so much in common in terms of, of interest in this period of time in these issues, yeah. you know, and I think especially today more than ever, you know, the stories of these guys from the Kennedy years is, mm-hmm. is more vital than ever, I think. Yeah. And um, Launching LBJ is my third book, and all of this material comes from my dad's um, tapes and diaries and and notes and things like that that we've had over the years. And what I what I have tried to do is pull them into sort of a story that that takes us through the Kennedy years. And a great deal of the credit for some of this actually belongs to Chris Matthews 
from MSNBC, yeah. who I worked with on, on his book on JFK, um, because all of these tapes and all this material were sitting in boxes and no one realized they, the value of them. Mm-hmm. And Chris was doing his book and we, we sort of joined forces and he said to me, look, if you go through all those tapes, I'll help you. And, and that, when I started transcribing all the tapes and it's, I can't tell you how many, I mean, it's hours and hours and hours, yeah. but you realize that you were really really being taken behind the scenes mm-hmm. of the Kennedy White House. Uh, I know, mean, it was the, he's such a wonderful raconteur that it's as if you're sitting in the Oval Office unseen, just watching <laughs> it all unfold in front of right. you. Right. I mean, and it's, and I was just going to say, it's just a fascinating real, story. Real quick. I mean, before we dig into the, the book and everything, I, I got to ask you about Chris Matthews. What, what was it like to uh, work in the same room with Chris Matthews? And, and, and you were uh, a researcher on his book, obviously. And right. uh, what was, what and was he, he like? To- he was terrific. He's, yeah. he's so he's smart as hell, you know, mm-hmm. and um, his mind works so quickly that, you know, you have to stay on your toes to keep up with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, um, He's sort of uh, my dad's kind of guy because, yeah. you know, he's just sharp, sharp, sharp. And, um, and you know, he's he's also a real historian. So, mm. you know, you have to know your stuff. Yeah. And the great thing about it was, you know, my dad has a particular viewpoint. And, you know, thanks to Chris, we got all this material transcribed and, and ready to use. But um, Chris has a sort of a viewpoint from a historical a, a historical perspective. Mm-hmm. So when my dad talks about certain things, you know, Chris knows the, the background to a lot of it, which was yeah. tremendously helpful to me because I was, you know, I was a kid then. So, you know, he mm-hmm. could really give it a perspective that was invaluable from my point of view. So when you started working, you know, so when you started working on launching LBJ, what was the, uh, what was the idea when you started to dig in uh, as far as uh, your dad's relationship with LBJ and and how those early days of uh, basically continuing the JFK administration, but after the assassination, where most guys stayed on, um, what was uh, what what inspired you to start uh, through this period of time? Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I jokingly say to people that I think that my dad actually, you know, almost wrote this book in a way because <laughs> I really was not fascinated by LBJ that much. Yeah. And I had, and my last book came up, The Irish Brotherhood. And I, you know, I, I was familiar like we all are with LBJ, but I never thought about my dad's relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And I went to give a speech at my old school um, about my last book, The Irish Brotherhood. And, um, and I had left some material there from when I was at school and in this box of books was one of my dad's books on, on, and it was a contemporary, you know, written about 1966 on LBJ, Mm -hmm. um, by Bob Novak and, and Rolly Evans. And my dad had all these notes in it. And I thought, oh, this is just uncanny, you know? So that made me go back to the tapes. And from there, this idea of telling a a very focused story about, you know, from dad and Bobby's perspective, from the assassination to, say, March 1965, and how these three guys with really differing agendas, and, you know, they weren't, you know, LBJ was not, didn't get along with Bobby and my dad had a, uh, you know, tense relationship with him, but how they, these three men uh, were able to put aside their own personal, you know, feelings 
and emotions and come together for the good of the country. Yeah. And to me, that's a great story because especially if you look at politics today, we don't see that anymore. Mm-hmm. Very rarely, you know, everybody's making a big deal about what Jeff Lake did the other day because <laughs> it's so shocking oh, yeah. when somebody takes a stand that's not in their self-interest. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to tell a story about these guys when that was expected in politics. Yeah. And um, and that's what they did. And mm. they, they really came together because the country was in shock when President Kennedy was killed. And, you know, these guys had to stabilize it. Yeah. And that's what they moved to do. And also, um, you know, Dad and Bobby had their own agenda. So, <laughs> you know, they were still, you know, as I said at one point in the book, the Kennedy administration was still in operation even while LBJ was president. Right. You know? And and so so it's an interesting relationship of of how they each are trying to promote their own positions. Yeah, he had LBJ had such a different approach in almost every way than uh, President Kennedy had, and that must have been. I mean, the word shock barely begins to describe what that experience must have been like. And I, I want to get back to the uh, the period right after the assassination here in a second, but. You know, moving just beyond that, beyond that, I can't even imagine the level of heartbreak. But once once your dad got beyond that, what was it like for him to have to recalibrate in order to adjust to running the LBJ White House versus the JFK White House? Well, you know, there's a great scene when he's finally, you know, it, it takes him a long time, and both he and Bobby, quite some time to finally pull it together and, yeah. and go back to work after right. after the murder of President Kennedy. And there's this marvelous scene in the book where it's his first day back, mm-hmm. and he, he sort of goes to the White House gates, and he can't stomach it, so he ends up walking up to Arlington and then walking back. And he walks, he finally gets into the Oval Office, and he talks about how shocking it was to him because he walked in and, you know, things were moving. The LBJ's people were in place, they mm-hmm. were making decisions, they were making phone calls, they were doing what had to be done. And my dad was sort of shocked in a way because he said he was numb is the word he used. Yeah. Because in John Kennedy's White House, you know, nobody moved without checking with my father. <laughs> Sure. And it was this moment of realizing that that, you know, things have changed, you know, that much that that these guys have a country to run, you mm-hmm. know, and they can't wait on you, you know. And so he he talks about going in and, and sitting down with LBJ for the first time. And he said that that Johnson and this is after their discussion on the plane. I mean, they've been through a lot at this point. Um, but he said, you know, LBJ said all the right things. He talked about, you know, I need Bobby to call Martin King. We need to do this and this and that on the civil rights bill. And But my dad said he was sitting there thinking, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. I don't know if I can recalibrate, you know, to use your word, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and serve another president because I, I was so hand in glove with John Kennedy. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't sure I could make the transition. Yeah. I mean, and um, and it's a very poignant story because uh, you can he, the way he tells it, he almost places you in that moment. Sure. And in the end, he decides to stay because he and Bobby decide their obligation to John Kennedy is to stabilize LBJ, get get the Kennedy agenda through Congress to the extent they can. 
and then they can move on. But mm-hmm. but that, that that was what John Kennedy would want them to do. And well, that's the story of the book. Was uh, was your dad and uh, and to an extent Ted Sorensen and all of the JFK crew was that staff kind of shuffled to the background and 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 more or less maybe not publicly speaking but maybe inside the White House LBJ's staff kind of taking over and, and being a little bit more assertive on that front, leaving your dad and, and Sorensen and all the rest to kind of play these more, I don't know, emeritus roles in the White House versus hands-on. Uh, was that the case, or was it well, simpatico from the beginning? Now, Ted Sorensen went up at some point in here. Um, he went to the cave and was writing his book. Yeah. Because he just couldn't, he couldn't do it. So right. he he went up and he advised, but he really just he stepped away. Mm-hmm. And um, and then what happened with my dad is he and Bobby, you know, and this book is written from dad and Bobby's perspective, because I found it hard to sort of relate to Lyndon Johnson because yeah. I just think he's a tough guy to really understand. So I wrote it from dad and Bobby's perspective, and they decided my dad decided that. His job was to help Marvin Watson and Jack Valenti and all these guys get up to speed. Yeah, Valenti so was uh, LBJ's. Uh, Valenti was LBJ's press secretary, right? Yes, mm-hmm. and um, and my dad didn't really know them until really he said that the most he ever dealt with them in the first time they, he really had any major interaction was on November 22nd. And so he had no animosity or anything like that. He just thought, I need to get them to a place where I can walk away. So there was no turf Um, war. I can't stay. There there was no turf war between the LBJ staff and the, the JFK staff, right? Or was there? Um, no, not, not at all, because I think my dad um, was such a unique figure that he, um, you know, people were, were, I don't know, several people said to me they were afraid of him. I don't know that that's true. They just had great respect for the role he played with John Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And maybe they were afraid of him to a degree. But they, they the Johnson staff was very good about you know, trying to respect my father's position. And, and I think, again, it's another statement on, you know, and that's been sort of overlooked a lot. And I think it's another statement about a group of people that are able to put themselves above, above partisan politics Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, sort of the ego. They understood that they all had a mission, which was to help the country um, move forward. And that's how LBJ put it. You know, we have to work together to help the country move forward. And I think, Bob, what's interesting is you, as I say, you just don't see that anymore in Mm -hmm. politics. Yeah. So when it did at a certain point, it did start to change. I mean, there's a great story in the book where, um, LBJ, um, Johnson calls together all the, all the different cabinet secretaries and everything else. And, you know, sort of gives them hell about, you know, not getting his name in the newspaper enough. And Pierre Salinger was so distressed <laughs> that he called my father at home and said, you know, I can't stay if he, because under Kennedy's administration, you know, that just wouldn't happen unless it went through my dad and, and then to Pierre. But, you yeah. know, the president never went around anyone. Yeah. And, um, but my dad was much more patient with things like that. Then I think, I think it was easier for him because he knew he and Bobby had an agenda. 
yeah. Right. And what was uh, and, and of course, Bobby Kennedy stayed on as attorney general into uh, the early years of the, the Johnson White House as well. But what was uh, your dad's relationship like with LBJ? I mean, because we've heard all these stories about how bombastic he could be, how confrontational he could be. I mean, he obviously was in almost every way opposite of JFK in style and approach oh, and yeah. personality. So how did your dad get along with LBJ personally? I mean, what do you because we all know, obviously, there's the public face of the administration and the continuity between the two administrations after a terrible tragedy. But your dad must have had something to say behind the scenes about LBJ's style. Most people have who have, who ended up meeting LBJ at one point or another. Well, he, you know, it's very funny because my dad was very clear on his, you know, and in, in this we try to make clear in the book. Um, on his stories of LBJ that they got along very well. You know, they would have, at the end of the day, they'd have a couple drinks in the Oval Office, and, and you know, and my dad said they, they got along very well on a social level because mm-hmm. LBJ felt that he could speak sort of the truth around my dad, and it wouldn't go anywhere else. I mean, he knew it would go to Bobby, yeah. but it would never go anywhere else. But I think what's evident to me as I was writing this book is it's clear you can see this evolution in my dad's thinking where it's just too much of an adjustment for him mm-hmm. to go from, you know, this this extraordinary relationship. He he said his relationship with John Kennedy was one in a million. Yeah. You know, it just those things don't happen in life very often to the relationship with LBJ, which, you know, LBJ liked to play people off each other, and, you know, he'd say one thing to one person, something to someone else, and, mm-hmm. you know, Jack Kennedy was never like that. You know, my dad was his his right-hand guy, you yeah. know, so anything he had to say went to my dad first. So I think that was really an adjustment for my father, and at one point, he and Bobby are having lunch at San Sushi down on Connecticut Avenue, <laughs> and they just feel that this adjustment is too hard for both of them you know for Bobby it's too painful Mm -hmm. and for my dad he just feels this is not what he this is not to his strength you know and and he tried very hard but I think that LBJ was so different that um, it just was hard for him. I don't think he ever successfully kind of made the transition. Yeah. Um, but I think on a on a he said on a social level he enjoyed being around him. Mm-hmm. But it was just that politically, you know, he would tell you I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then he'd tell you know Bob down the hall I'm going to do da 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 <laughs> after just telling you something else. Yeah, yeah. And um, my dad just couldn't work that way, mm-hmm. and he said this. The great thing about these tapes, as my dad says right on them, you know, he said this to the president. He said it directly to Johnson. You know, I can't work this way. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to stop doing that or I'm not going to stay. <laughs> and um, and so I think for, I think Johnson respected him on that front. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was your dad was a political advisor primarily um, worked on uh, JFK's campaign in, in 1960 uh, and then was mainly a political advisor for President Kennedy. What was the, in your estimation, and certainly drawn from uh, your dad's tapes and writing, 
What was the biggest challenge with LBJ, politically speaking, in those in that first bunch of months that obviously he's thrown into this job? He immediately has to start running for president in 64. Um, And he wrote a a wave of popularity that was started by President Kennedy. But there had to be political liabilities going in, too, because you're going to have a lot of people who are disillusioned, who aren't have they don't have the same fervor for LBJ as they maybe had for JFK. so going into this brand new, well, technically it was still the Kennedy administration, but with new leadership, what was the biggest challenge in getting uh, uh, LBJ from November 22nd, 1963, all the way up to Election Day 1964? Well, it's a, it's a great question because what my dad talks about a lot is that um, – John Kennedy and, and LBJ were very different people politically. Yeah. And, you know, we all know that how LBJ ended up on the ticket is, and this story I cover in the book, you know, sort of from my dad's point of view, how he actually ended up on the ticket and why he ended up there. And so, you know, his politics were much more conservative than Jack Kennedy's. Mm-hmm. And um, although, you know, conservative in those days, not in today's terms, yeah. you know. Um, and so... I think what was the biggest challenge that my dad and Bobby faced was getting LBJ to to stick with Jack Kennedy's agenda and his politics and not and not to be pulled by his own advisors in a different direction. He said that that LBJ had great instincts, you know, in terms of pushing pushing Kennedy's agenda. But, you know, he also had his own sort of viewpoint about how to get from here to there mm-hmm. and and in terms of the Senate and his approach. And that was something that was a real challenge for my dad and Bobby was, you know, keeping Jack's agenda at the forefront mm-hmm. and not allowing that to be sidetracked. Because LBJ had his own you know, sort of view of what, you know, the great society and all these things that he had long wanted or envisioned for the country. Mm-hmm. And what what my dad and Bobby wanted to do is, you know, for the next year, just focus on getting John Kennedy's priorities through right. and getting successfully reelected. And if you do that and we stabilize you, then you can run with the ball. You can do whatever you have to do, but you got to get there first. Exactly. And I think that was the biggest challenge for him. And, um, and at one point, and this wouldn't happen today because I don't think it's legal, but the other thing that happened is my dad also went over and was executive director of the Democratic National Committee while serving in the White House. (laughs) And so it's an interesting story because not only was he guiding kind of Johnson legislatively on civil rights and all these other issues, he was also running the campaign with, (laughs) you know, Dick McGuire and John Bailey and all these guys, you know, so... You couldn't do that today, but it, it, it's fascinating because they were really, they had, uh, they ran the campaign. They knew what the numbers they wanted to run up for Johnson mm. yeah. and to make him, you know, it wasn't hard against Barry Goldwater, but you still have to actually do it. Yeah. And, um, and then the other thing too, is that he felt very strongly that uh, they had to, and you can argue whether this was right or wrong later, but getting Hubert Humphrey was something that Bobby and dad really pushed for because they felt that Humphrey was the closest to Jack Kennedy's political views Mm -hmm. and that once he and Bobby left, that Humphrey could kind of keep LBJ on track. 
Interesting. And keep him in John Kennedy's kind of footsteps, if you will, and not be drawn into the more conservative side of the party. And you mentioned and, this, um, you, you mentioned civil rights. Just it's an a second. interesting story, Bob. You know, it's just interesting. I never knew that till I until I wrote this. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned civil rights a second ago. Uh, how involved was your dad as far as advising uh, the president on uh, the Civil Rights Act, which was uh, passed uh, not not too many months after the assassination? Uh, I, I imagine yeah, that was the first big priority item for LBJ going into uh, that term, I mean, Vietnam aside, uh, was that, uh, what kind of challenges did your dad face uh, politically for the White House at that point? Well, you know, it's interesting because my dad, that first conversation when he first comes back to work, the first thing he, that um, Johnson said to him is, you know, I need Bobby to call Martin King. We need to get mm-hmm. him online yeah. and get this bill through, and I want to do it for him, you know, for Jack. And my dad said, you know, it was clear to him that Johnson didn't need to be told this had to be done. You know, yeah. this was he understood that getting the civil rights bill through would – you know, really um, would would seal his reelection, if you will. Yeah. And so he said that that really uh, Johnson deserves full credit for, you know, picking up the ball and running with it. And, you know, my dad said all these guys afterwards who took credit for it, it it's sort of not really appropriate in the sense that <laughs> nobody needed to tell LBJ that if you don't get this through, you're not going to win. You, right. You've got to get this through and you've got to get it through as is, you know, you, you can't compromise. And, mm. it, and, you know, Johnson had tried previously to get a civil rights bill through and lost it. Mm. And so um, what my dad talked about is that the guy who really helped him push it through is, um, and he doesn't get much credit according to my dad, but the guy who really pushed it was Larry O'Brien, mm-hmm. who was another member of the Irish Mafia. Yeah, yeah. And um, O'Brien was the legislative guy for Kennedy and, and a brilliant fellow. And, you know, he and Johnson really combined to get this done. And my dad and Bobby handled the political side. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a hell of a team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's just, uh, it was such a. <laughs> Such a dream team at that period of time, uh, and and so many successes to get racked up. Uh, did your dad uh, ever react to uh, LBJ's approach to Vietnam? I mean, this obviously it really escalated out of control once your dad had already left the White House around what 1965. And uh, is that is that accurate? I'm I'm just recalling yes, based on. No, you're absolutely yeah. right. And, and as a matter of fact, and and I cover this in the end of the book. Um, mm-hmm that my dad had had a conversation in 62 with Jack Kennedy yeah. and said to him, you know, you, this, it was just, he was dead against the war from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And both he and Jack were war heroes. They'd fought, you know, they were not like a lot of these guys. They knew what, what it takes to win and, and what, what we can and can't accomplish. And so, and they didn't accept, uh, they didn't accept what the military said at face value. Yeah. And what my dad said on, on, you know, and this would cover, in the book is that um, Johnson didn't question the military. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they said, and he didn't question McNamara. And, you know, Jack Kennedy thought McNamara was brilliant, but he didn't take what he said at face value. He didn't take anybody's. After the Bay of Pigs, he learned his lesson. Yeah. And he thought the biggest difference with between Jack Kennedy and Johnson on Vietnam was that Johnson never questioned these guys. Interesting. And, you know, he said to one of the conversations he had with Johnson towards the end of my dad's time there was that, you know, you can't listen to these guys. And once they drag you in it, it's going to be very hard to get out because 
they'll set it up so you can't easily withdraw without looking foolish. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, he said Johnson just didn't want to hear it because he believed, you know, these guys with all the stars and the uniform, you know, they must know what they're doing. Yeah. And, um, and he, you know, unlike Jack and my dad, um, you know, he didn't have the, the military background of fighting in a war. And he also hadn't, you know, he'd been there for the Bay of Pigs, but he didn't take the same lessons from it that Jack and Bobby and my dad did. And, you know, what they took from the Bay of Pigs was, you know, man, you can't take these guys at face value. I don't care how wonderful they are and how many stars they have. Do you think that was because um, uh, JFK they, was uh, cozier with the military than uh, than President Kennedy was? Is that is that why? Or w- what linked LBJ more closely with military advisors? Was it, and even, I mean, the fact that LBJ had, as you said, been through the Bay of Pigs and also the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, there in the room, uh, it seems to me as if they came away from it with different takeaways where President Kennedy was a little more skeptical of his military advisors right. and LBJ embraced them a little more. Is that accurate? No, that's absolutely accurate. You know, it's interesting because this is what my dad thought is he said that, um, and again, we cover this in the book, is that there was a, an insecurity to Lyndon Johnson hmm. that my father didn't understand. My father and Bobby were both, you know, they were legitimately tough guys, you know, not fake tough guys like we have today in politics. These guys, you know, they were very tough, and Jack Kennedy was tough. And they had no insecurities at all. Um, And I think my dad felt that Johnson was underneath, and he shouldn't have been because he said he was this brilliant tactician in terms of legislation. Mm -hmm. That's how he was able to get the Civil Rights Bill through so quickly and all of this. But he had this underlying insecurity that really sort of made him decide differently on each situation. And my dad could never figure that out because he just didn't share it. And he said, you know, he would talk to these generals and he just didn't have the sense of self to stand up to them and say what Jack would say, which is, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) You know, that doesn't make any sense to me. And Johnson just didn't question them, and he felt that it underneath, you know, this sort of, he really was a brilliant man. He just didn't seem to know that himself, which is kind of sad. Hmm. And I think that's how, you know, underlying Vietnam, I think that's how we got deeper and deeper, because he didn't have the courage to to stand up to these guys. And then I think what my dad said is true. Once you get drawn in, it's harder and harder to get out without losing face, especially in those days. Would, uh, Although I think that's true now. We're still in Afghanistan. You know? and, and the big obvious question that everyone has is the uh, revisionist historical question, which is that if, if Kennedy had lived, if he had not been murdered, uh, do, do, did your dad think that uh, pulling out of Vietnam was in the cards if, uh, if yeah, President he, Kennedy had survived? He actually said there was no question about it. He, um, wow. he and Jack talked about it right before they went to, to Texas. And Jack said as soon as the – I mean, he was an eminently practical politician when it came down to it. He wanted to win first, you know. Yeah. And Jack said as soon as the election's over – and he knew he was going to be – running against Barry Goldwater, mm-hmm. although Goldwater wasn't announced at that point. Yeah. But um, Jack was dying to run against Goldwater. But he said, as soon as I win the election, then then we're out of there. Because he, he just was had become convinced there was no way they could win. Yeah. And, and I was, wanted to kind of confirm this. And for my 
first book, A Common Good, which is about the friendship of, of Bobby and my dad, mm-hmm. I was able to interview Mike Mansfield, and he was sort of very much at the end of his life, but he was still sharp as could be. <laughs> and he said, he confirmed for me, he said he sat in the Oval Office with my dad and Jack, and they and Jack made very clear that he was out of there as soon as he got through the election. Yeah. Because he said, then I don't care. I have nothing to lose, and I don't care if I lose face because I'm not going to run again. Yeah. And um, and now my dad said he made this all very clear to Johnson, mm-hmm. but um, he said that Johnson wasn't hearing that, you know, because he at this point was focused on winning re-election, mm-hmm. and he was focused on the domestic agenda. And the end of launching LBJ, my dad very poignantly says, you know, it, 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 that the last time he, he finally realizes in March 65 he can't stay on because he's constantly caught between Johnson's agenda and Bobby's. You know, Bobby's yeah. now up in running for Senate. And he said that um, when he told President Johnson he was going to leave to go to Massachusetts and run for governor, that Johnson got so mad at him he never spoke to him again. Hmm. Um, and so he was never, never able to really sort of um, close the loop in terms of, of his feelings on Vietnam with Johnson personally, mm-hmm. right. which is kind of too bad. By the way, Mike Mansfield um, was the uh, Senate Majority Leader in, throughout most of the 60s and 70s. I mean, he's a pretty big time uh, a politician at that point in time in the Democratic uh, establishment. So I just wanted to fill in that quick blank. But yes, let's... And then he became, what was he, ambassador to Japan when he... I interviewed him. Oh, yeah, there you he go. Had been in, at the end, but I, I, I forget how, you know, that was sort of, he was, I mean, I'm, he was in his 90s when I spoke to him, <laughs> but he was sharp as could be. And um, I just, my dad had already talked about that conversation publicly, but I just wanted to hear it from Mansfield's point of view. Yeah. And it mirrored what my dad said exactly. So, and it was the last time they discussed, um, no, actually, that's not true. The last time they discussed Vietnam was... Um, Jack was talking about the plans he had upon return from Dallas. And the reason he wanted to return as quickly as he did is he had a meeting with the um, ambassador uh, from Vietnam here in Washington. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to discuss sort of the plans for withdrawal. And, of course, that meeting obviously never happened. Yeah, yeah. So let's rewind a little bit, Helen. Um, tell me about your dad's friendship with Bobby and Jack and, and how they hooked up. Uh, and then speaking more specifically, what your dad your dad's first impressions were of President Kennedy uh, after they met, because uh, obviously the entree into President Kennedy for your dad uh, was obviously uh, Bobby Kennedy. So, uh, how did that? Uh, how did this uh, Irish mafia get started? Where? When did they all first link up and uh, and become friends? Well, it's a great story because it, um, they were, my dad was, uh, at Harvard. He went to Harvard. His, his dad was a football coach at Holy Cross and my dad came back from the war and he didn't want to go to Holy Cross because his dad was a coach there. <clears throat> so he went to Harvard and he was, uh, uh, playing, he was quarterback and captain of the football team and was a real star. Many of his <laughs> records remained unbroken for a very long time. And, uh, Bobby came to go to Harvard and his dad told him to look up my father because it turned out that his father and my grandfather went to Boston Latin school together, which wow. is just amazing. I never had known that. So yeah. Bobby and my dad met at Harvard and they just kind of hit it off because they were sports nuts and political nuts, you mm-hmm. know? 
and they they had they would talk you know uh, politics while throwing the football around at night. Of course, they uh, they went over to uh, Tobin's house to lift weights with uh, PJ and Squee. <laughs> Says I feel like I got that as you were saying it. Right. I thought, I don't think that was his name. <laughs> <laughs> I got that, but I'm a little slow. <laughs> so, I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't you were think saying. they had any PJs or squeeds. They didn't no, think he was saying I, that. <laughs> I, I seriously, seriously doubt it. But you were you were saying yeah, about meeting at uh, your 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 dad and Bobby Kennedy meeting up at Harvard and uh, playing football oh, anyway, together. Oh, they met at so. Harvard, and um, I'm laughing because I'm now trying to think of their other friends who had these odd names. Maybe it is a sports thing. I don't know. <laughs> um, but anyway, Bobby was dying for my dad to meet his older brother Jack, mm. who he just was enamored of, you know. And my dad was pretty skeptical at first because he thought, you know what do I want to meet your older brother for? And they met at the Bellevue Hotel, the famous Bellevue Hotel in, in Boston. Mm-hmm. And the first time they met, they actually didn't like each other, which is kind of a funny thing if you think about it. Yeah. Um, and then the second time, and Bobby was just crushed, so he pushed and pushed for them to meet again. And the second time they met, um, they ended up talking about surprise, surprise sports. <laughs> and um, and that was kind of their entree. And from then on, they never looked back. Yeah. And so he was with, you know, he was with Jack from really, I would say, you know, he would say 1950. I don't think he, he wasn't really involved in the 46 campaign, but, you know, it was more after that. And um, he and Jack just developed this marvelous relationship, though it took time. Yeah. And, um, and Bobby was, you know, my dad's best pal forever and ever. So that's how that all sort of got underway. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what my first two books cover. Yeah. And so it's kind of, it's a, it's a great story of, it's really a guy's story, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting in terms of our historical perspective of JFK himself as an intellectual because you you see a lot of reports uh contemporaneous reports at the time of people kind of not regarding jfk as necessarily the intellectual of the kennedy brothers or the guy who was most uh tapped into the bloodstream of american politics that he was more aloof and kind of separated from that but you know when you really think about president kennedy in context of of all presidents or of all political leaders, especially when you're looking at modern politics, he was very much an intellectual. He was a, an amazing writer and he saw and recognized the enormous talents of some of the people around him. And we go back to Ted Sorensen, who was one of the great political writers of all time. Uh, certainly your dad, certainly his, you know, uh, uh, JFK's brother, Bobby, and, and so on. Uh, and that kind of gets lost because we think about JFK just in terms of those a uh, couple of years in the White House and not in terms of the broader context. Did, did, was your dad um, also um, cognizant of, of how smart JFK actually was, how talented he was for communicating? Oh, yeah. I mean, and what I was going to say is, you know, I think you're quite correct. In those early days, people didn't take Kennedy very seriously. They didn't yeah. take Jack seriously, but he wasn't very serious in the early days. Mm-hmm. So they didn't take him seriously because he just hadn't made kind of that, what my dad called that turn in the road when he decided, you know what, I'm going to get serious about this. Yeah. And I think really when that happened was the 52 campaign. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when he won, and, and that was when my dad said that was really when you began to see, you know, this guy has has the, the stuff to go all the way. Yeah. He's, you know, he's brilliant and he just has this great 
political instinct, but he was also tough as nails. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that I, I think he had... You know, Ben Bradley said to me once, he had this ability to sort of, this is Jack, to kind of hover over everybody mm -hmm. so that he always seemed sort of a step ahead and slightly removed from everybody and everything that was happening around him. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of like he always saw the ne the, the next step in, 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 on the ladder before anybody else did. Mm -hmm. And Ben thought that was one of his most, you know, um, really understated, if you will, gifts because in a politician, that's that's a a wonderful thing to have is to sort of always know where you need to put your foot next. And that Jack just had that great instinct, that great gut. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and he was, the other thing that I think was important is he had these brilliant guys, not just like my dad, but Larry O'Brien and as mm -hmm. you say, Ted Sorensen and, and Pierre was came later and, you know, was not quite as much as the inner circle as those other guys were. But what struck me the most about all of them is their devotion to Jack. They were all brilliant on their own, but they were able to set their egos aside and come together to support this man's success. Yeah. And that doesn't happen very much in politics anymore, if mm -hmm. you think about it. Yeah, I know. You I know, know. You, I mean, you can't, you know, these guys go into the White House and they're already calling their editor for their next book. <laughs> and they haven't even stepped foot to the door yeah, yet. Yeah, sure. And, you know, they're calling, you know, NBC to get their show lined out. You know, in those days, these guys who were, you know, and you met Ted Sorensen, but man, mm -hmm. was an intellectual giant. Oh, God, yes. They were, I mean, he was a giant. And they, but the, all of them were able to put aside their egos because they saw that Jack Kennedy was, you know, a brilliant guy that could change the country. Mm -hmm. And they came together to support him. And I think... That is one of Jack Kennedy's most brilliant qualities that it doesn't get a lot of attention is his ability to bring people together like that. That's yeah. a real skill. And your dad was known as, and this is his uh, most famous nickname, I assume, is uh, the Cobra. Your dad was nicknamed the Cobra. Um, when people yeah, talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What were what were some of the other nicknames? There were there was one that I was trying to remember that I think uh, Jackie had for uh, your dad, and uh, I couldn't quite remember what that was sort of sort of like gatekeeper or something like he was known as the the gatekeeper yeah, and, um and it, it's very funny because jackie used to say that um that and the, everybody refers to my dad as you know the kennedy political consigliere but unlike <laughs> you know dopey um trump's guy my dad actually knew yeah. what the word meant and actually did the job right. you know successfully yeah yeah <laughs> he In was fact jack kennedy's right-hand tough, you know, SOB. You In know, fact, you know, problem playing that role. you were mentioning Trump's guy, who I think you were t you were talking about, Steve Bannon. I think your your dad was actually, in terms of his role... No, I was talking about that fool, Michael Cohen. Who, oh, Michael Cohen. Oh, okay. A political consigliere. He wouldn't know how to spell the word. Um, <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, I was thinking in terms of... I mean, Steve Bannon as a political advisor uh, for Trump oh, in the, uh, in the, until he yeah. was fired uh, is, I think, more along the lines of what your dad was for JFK, more of a political strategist. Is well, that he correct? Wishes he was. My yeah. dad wouldn't let him through the, you know, he wouldn't have gotten through the gate if my dad, <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's yeah, be sure. These guys, none of them would have gotten through the gate. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, these are just, you know, these are foolish people. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and so... 
these guys were at a, a different level. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I one of the things Jackie used to say when my dad walked in the room, it always meant that Jack had to go back to work. Ah. And so she called him the name you're reaching for. She called him the wolfhound. Ah, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> um, and he had, she, that, you know, he, it, my dad was, you know, he was all business. He was tough as nails. Yeah. And, uh, there's a there's a great story during the campaign. They were you know they're in they're on the bus and they're going they're in Vegas and they decide to stop for the night because they're all exhausted and Jack wants a break, and all the press is there. You know they're all there and they are they have this great time. The Rat Pack puts on a show. And then there's a private party afterwards. And one of the press guys said to me, you know, we're the, we're the White House press corps. We're pretty impressive people. Yeah. You know? And we're sitting down there and we've all had a few pops. And he said, your father walked in the room. He signaled to the band to cut the music. So they stopped. And he said, your father looked at everyone and said, okay, well, that's it. We're shutting down for the night. All of you take your drinks, go to your room. That's it. We don't want to see you till the morning. Wow. And he said, you know, nobody questioned him. Everybody got yeah. their little drinks and went to their rooms. Yeah. And because Jack was going to have a private party with Frank Sinatra <laughs> and the gang afterwards, Jesus. and he didn't want the damn press reporting on it. Sure. And I looked at him, and I said, it never occurred to you to say no? He said, oh, hell no. Your father would have thrown me off the bus. <laughs> There you go. Well, he would have left me. He said a couple times he left people behind. He said they gave him a hard time. He just left them behind. So it seems to me as if your dad had to develop a really close relationship with guys like Ben Bradley from the Washington Post, of course, and, and other, uh, obviously, the White House press corps uh, because of certain, uh, let's say, political liabilities for President Kennedy. Was that right. uh, something your dad right. had to constantly <laughs> focus on? Like, how do I keep President Kennedy's women away from the press? Or it, was it just an open secret, obviously? I think that's the... the- no, you know, he, my dad, he talks about this, and it's a great, it's a great honest answer, I think. Yeah. Because, you know, everybody sort of tries to baloney around this issue. But, you know, right. my dad was a straight shooter. He didn't care what you thought. Um, <laughs> he was asked about this. And what he said at, at the time, these these tapes are contemporary. They were done after the White House years. So I want to say 65, 66. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's very sharp at this point. And what he said is that he and Jack had an understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad's role was to be his political right-hand guy, his consigliere, his guy to advise him what to do and to keep him out of trouble. And he said, I'd say to him, look, you can't do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And he said, Jack would look at me and sometimes he'd listen. And he'd say, okay, well, you're right about that. And sometimes I'd tell him, look, you can't go do X, Y, and Z. And he'd look at me and he'd say, go to hell. <laughs> and, um, you know, and he said, my father said I would look at him and go, yes, sir. And <laughs> sure. that was it. Yeah. He is a president or he is a senator, you know. And he said, and he said my belief was, look, I'm not his nanny. I'm mm-hmm. his political right-hand guy. I can tell you what I think you should do. I can tell you what I think you shouldn't. But he's a man. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a, he, he can tell me yes or he can tell me to go to hell, and I have to respect that. <laughs> right. I'm not, you know, and he said, but he would never um, – you know, he would never, you know, bullshit for him mm-hmm. with the press. He would just tell them, get out. Yeah, yeah. Because then there's nothing you, you know, and they always left because in those days, you know, they didn't dare cross. 
you know, what Sandy Van Oker said to me is, we just didn't dare cross your father. He was just, <laughs> like he said, he's, he kicked someone off the bus and leave him somewhere. That's right. So, um, what, and he wouldn't do that just to the press, Bob. He did that to Kennedy family members, too. <laughs> do, do you have any memory of those years, Helen, uh, when your dad was working in the no. White House? No. I was I was born I I I was you know and it's funny because everybody asked me and um, this is kind of a funny story because it gives you a sense of their relationship. Yeah. Um, when I was born, my dad was in they were in I want to say Nassau with Macmillan, who was the <laughs> Prime Minister of England, and um, and they were and I'm getting some stupid thing on the phone. Sorry. Oh, that's weird. Um, and they were in Nassau for this meeting. Oh, you know, you know what and that is. My mother you was know, pregnant with. That, you know what that is, Helen? That is the that is you know, the president uh, texting everybody. That is Trump's text that went out that, to every cell phone. That's what that noise was. Uh, thank you. A, it'll just screaming help, probably. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Now? Yeah, yeah. I got to figure out how to block the president from texting me from now on. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. That that noise was oh, no, uh, no. annoying, of course. Um, uh, well, get him off my phone too. <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, anyway, um, I was born around that time. My dad was in, it was with the president, of course. He's always yeah. with the president. Mm -hmm. And um, so my, you know, my dad got a call and, and he's, they're in a meeting. It's McMillan and Jack. And my dad was always in the room for everyone from Khrushchev to everyone. Mm -hmm. And he didn't say anything. He just says, you know, hung back yeah. and listened. And then after these meetings, Jack would kind of download what he was thinking. Mm -hmm. And all of this is all on the table. That's yeah. how we have this rich information. But he said that, um, you know, he got a call and he went and he took the call. He interrupted. He had to leave the meeting to take this call. And he came back in the room and then he just stood there with his arms folded and didn't say anything. And Jack looked at him and said, well, was it a boy or a girl? What happened? Is she okay? And my father said, oh, yeah, she had the baby. Wow. And Jack said, was it a boy or a girl? Mm. And my father said, oh, I forgot to ask. No. <laughs> wow! And so, Jack was like, "What do you mean you forgot to ask?" And, and so and were remember, you. You know, he he and Jackie had trouble having children. You know, we had five, so you know, my father was a little less. Oh my goodness, another yeah. baby! You know, right? So, right. um. Uh, Jack picked up the phone and called my mother at the hospital and, and so, wanted to know what the baby was. <laughs> were, were you named after your mom or was Helen just a family name? Yes. Oh, you were. Oh, that's no, great. Wow. I was named after my mom and um, and my and my mother loved telling that story because it drove my father crazy <laughs> because he really didn't ask. And Jack yeah. Kennedy called her, which, of course, she loved and um, was all excited, wanted to know it was a boy or a girl and everything mm. else and asked her all these questions. And she said, you know, Kenny didn't ask me any of that. Not yeah. her weight, not whether it was a boy or a girl, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Well, so let's, you know, let's so, dig into the uh, the missile crisis, Helen, uh, because this is obviously where I, I think your dad's overall recognizability as a member of the administration really hit a high watermark uh, with the movie 13 Days, where Kevin Costner played yeah. your dad. And uh, it's literally maybe among my top three or four favorite political uh, movies of all time. It's just so it is well a done. Great movie, isn't it? Yeah, it and, really is. And of course, you, your dad is shown to be heavily involved and in, and a member of XCOM, which is the executive committee of the National Security Council, that really guided and made a lot of the decisions and 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 really mulled over 
over all of the details in terms of contingency plans and how to approach uh, the missiles in, in Cuba and then, of, of course, the quarantine and all the back and forth that occurred around that. Um, so but some historians have actually disputed how involved your dad was. And I think with those of us who know uh, about your dad and have read about your dad and certainly you um, listening to his tapes and, and reading his writing from that time, how how deeply involved was he? Um, and I imagine more so than uh, than some of the, the critics have have said. Uh, but wh- where do you uh, where do you land on all of that? Well, you know, it's interesting because he, that movie, my brother Kevin was actually involved in that movie. Yeah. And the script from that movie was written from one side, part of it was written from one side of, of my dad's tapes mm-hmm. um, on the Cuban Missile Crisis. So they had sort of direct access to that particular section of his tapes. And, um, and so they decided to do the movie from my dad's perspective because um, Costner, Kevin Costner, whom I don't really know, but this is just my understanding of it, is he wanted to portray it from dad's perspective because he was not only in on every meeting, but he was sort of an everyman. You know, my dad was that blue-collar guy mm-hmm. that that could speak to these issues for the average everyday guy yeah. and, and could relate to them. And what my dad would say and what I found on the tapes is that he was in every single meeting and he was involved in Ultimately, in all the details, but um, he was not the guy, you know, he was the guy as in everything he did with Jack Kennedy. He was the guy, you'll see him in these photos, leaning back, you know, he's in the background with his arms folded. He just yeah. listens. And then after everybody left, then he and Bobby and Jack would sit down and hash it out. And my dad said that was his role. He was, he said, I was kind of, you know, I would reflect what I heard. Yeah. And I would tell Jack, you know, he never called him that. He called him the president. But he said, I would tell him exactly what I thought. And, you know, if I thought somebody was full of crap or had their own agenda, I'd tell him that. And he would, just like everything else, he would, Jack would listen and then he would make a decision. Um, and the same thing with Bobby. Bobby, you know, gets enormous credit as he should, but the, you know, the Jack was the decider. Yeah. And, and my dad is very clear on the tapes. Our role was to just, you know, it was, it was kind of to be his, his sound barrier, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. he would listen to everybody and then ask, we download what we thought we heard. Yeah. And I think what's different is, you know, that you can't really easily portray that in a movie (laughs) and you can't. And it doesn't help you if your star of the movie is just leaning against the wall, not saying too much during critical scenes. Well, you know, it's you know? actually, you know, the portrayal in the movie, uh, in in contrast, or in, in fact, in comparison with what you have described, is pretty damn close. I mean, in the movie, yeah, they didn't... that was what he, he was. Yeah. You know, that was his role. Right, right. Yeah, and that's, and and that's remember, of course, what I'm Kostner getting at. Kostner had access to mm-hmm. some of this material. So, and, you know, and as I said, I don't want to misrepresent it. I don't know Mr. Kostner, but he he created the character from the actual tape. So yep. the only difference really was my father didn't have that Boston accent, but his role in that movie is very accurate because he's going by my dad's own stories. Oh, see, you know, that's, that's fascinating. That. When you say that uh, your dad didn't actually have that Boston accent, which Kevin Costner, had that of course makes me think and this is more in the along the lines of the filmmaking but 
you know, Kevin, the worst thing about that movie is Kevin Costner's Boston accent. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, why did you yeah, put so on a Boston accent? Have that. He, he actually, the Kennedy accent drove him crazy, which is very funny, and I don't know why he decided to have the accent. Yeah, you and know, my, I guess he likes accents. Somebody said to me he likes accents. Well, my, my friends but, and I um, always make fun of There's one line right at the beginning of the movie that Kevin Costner delivers, and it's the, the one moment of that movie that takes us clean out of it. And Kevin Costner goes, this is your report card. And it's, it's so... <laughs> Bad. My dad. You have to hear some of the tapes, Bob, because he just doesn't. He's he's quite articulate, actually, yeah. because my grandfather was um, not only a football coach but an English teacher at Holy mm-hmm. Cross. So you know, he had you. He is very very clear on his pronunciation and yeah. everything else. And in listening to the tapes, <laughs> it's it's marvelous because you just don't hear every once in a while certain words, but you don't hear that Boston twang. Yeah. Um, but I think my grandfather maybe did allow it no mm-hmm. boston twangs in the worcester household <laughs> <laughs> there you go uh, you know and how did your how did your mom deal with the crisis i mean you must have uh, talked with her uh before she died and uh, and uh, did this ever come up as far as uh, experiencing like her, her husband being in the white house at the time when we came so dangerously close to basically the end of the world how did your how did your mom cope with all of that well, it's interesting because my parents died the same year in mm-hmm. 1977, and I was very young, and she, she was young. She was only 49, and he was only wow. 53. So everything I've learned about them, I've learned from the tapes or from interviewing people because I don't really, I was young and I don't really, you know, I was too young to sort of even be thinking about these things or talking to her about things like this. Yeah. And so um, I, I've interviewed some of my siblings, though, obviously, because they remember more because they're older, um, which I always remind them often and always. Um, but uh, anyway, they had said to me that it was, you know, it was just as it was portrayed in the movie. It was a very scary time. Yeah. And they had received orders of where all the, you know, the family should go and everyone else that, mm-hmm. you know, most of the administration had. But my dad had not. And there's a marvelous scene in the movie mm-hmm. where, um, where, and that is actually from, from the tapes where, um, you know, the Costner character is saying, is saying to his wife, you know, she said, what am I supposed to do with your children? And um, they, my dad and Bobby had decided they were going to stay with the president. Yeah. Which meant that they would be safe. Mm-hmm. And they they had not made arrangements. They were thinking, if it's the end of the world, we'll just stay here. We want to be with our kids. You know, there's no point in, you know, who are we kidding here is what they were actually thinking. Right. And um, my mother said it was one of the most my just terrifying time <sighs> because it really, you know, you just didn't know. It could be the end of the world. And mm-hmm. I think it was something that, that he didn't fully understand how frightening it was for her. Yeah, yeah. Um, because he was in the middle of it. Sure. And, you know, for, for she and for Ethel, you know, they have all these kids, you mm-hmm. know, and I think for he and Bobby, they just didn't ever understand till afterwards just how terrifying it was for the wives. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, all the instructions for the families were mostly cosmetic because it would have taken less time for the missiles to arrive than it would for for you and your brothers and your sister was born at the time, I assume, and your mom to get to. We all were at that point. And, and, um, but you know, the funny thing is this was the thing, my father who had been through a war, you know, he and Jack understood this. And Mm -hmm. he said afterwards, and this is also on the tapes that, 
you know, he didn't make these arrangements because who are we kidding? If it actually happens, no. there's no survival. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's nice to say, but it's different if you're the mom with all the kids. The same yeah. thing for Ethel, you know. Um, I don't know how many she had at that point, but, you know, <laughs> it's easy for you to say in the White House, yeah. but it's tough if you're on the other end. That's right. Um but I think that, you know, he says on the tapes, it's an interesting thing. He said he and Bobby had a discussion, and they just had such confidence in Jack that as scary as it was, they were absolutely confident that he would solve it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's amazing. I mean, you can't, I can't say that about a president and, you know, that I can think of that I, uh, you know, since I've been voting. Yeah. You know, these guys just had such confidence in him. Then he said, I never was absolutely flat out terrified because he always solved everything. It just never occurred to us he wouldn't solve this as well because yeah. he said he was so brilliant. And he said, Bobby and Jack were a couple of really smart guys. They'll take care of it. Right, right. And um, and there's a great story, if I can tell you, and I don't sure. think this is in – um, it's. I don't think it's in the movie because um, I hadn't. I hadn't found it yet on the tapes, so it didn't make it into that. Um, but I found it while I was working on launching LBJ, um, and it was during the height of the the crisis. And Bobby and Dad decide to go to get out of the White House. You know, they just mm-hmm. have to. Sometimes you got to get out of there, and and you could in those days. You know, and they walk out and they decide to go down to Connecticut Avenue and and get a bite to eat, get a burger or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, they go in someplace, and of course, my dad has a beer, and Bobby has a milk. Which Bobby, you know, he said Bobby frowned at him. <laughs> you should be having a beer. We're in a crisis. Um, and wow. so, they, in typical, that's their relationship. And so, they have their hamburger, and they walk back. And they, you know, there isn't much you can say. You know, yeah. they're just they're waiting for the ex-commas meeting, and and all the stuff. And Jack is coming down. And as they, they crossed through Lafayette Park, um, and he, you know, he said that Bobby said to him, you know, I have this kind of crazy idea, and I want to I wanna get a few minutes alone with my brother without anybody there. <laughs> yeah. And he said, can you arrange that? Can you stall everybody? And so, um, you know, my, my dad said, sure. I mean, you're his brother. Sure, if that's what you want, yeah, I'll stall mm-hmm. everybody. He said, what's the idea? And he said, well, you're going to think it's stupid, but it's pretty simple. And, and what I think is that we should just, and this is when they were talking about the, the letters, which letter to believe. Oh, yeah, right. There were two Khrushchev letters that were yes. teletyped to the White House. One was less bellicose, and then the, there was a second one that was much more bellicose. And they decided right. to, I don't want to skip ahead too far, so I'm going to let no, you no, finish the story. No, no, you're exactly right. And, yeah. and Bobby turns to my dad, and, you know, they had this sort of, you know, brotherly kind of give each other grief all the time relationship. Mm-hmm. And so um, Bobby said, you're going to think it's stupid. And, and you know, my dad looked at him and said, hey, Bobby, we're facing the end of the world. I mean, I would just throw the idea out there, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how why not? It be committed to where we are, right, uh-huh. you know? And um, Bobby said, okay, well, this is what I think we should do. We should just, you know, ignore the the bellicose letter, Mm -hmm. um, to use your beautiful word, to ignore that letter and just pretend we never got it and just accept the other one. Yeah, exactly. And where did you... um, And my dad looked at him and said, I think it's a great... What are you talking about? It's a brilliant idea. Go talk to your brother. And so 
they go in and he said that, you know, he stalled everybody. And then the brothers talked my dad said, I wasn't there. I don't know what they decided, but he said, then they had the meeting and Jack walks in and said, this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And, and so just backing up a couple of days, where did your dad land on the issue of quarantine versus airstrikes? Where did he, uh, what was his first instinct as far as which approach to take? He even thought the quarantine was the way to go because he thought the airstrikes would start, you know, you'd immediately start a war because mm-hmm. he was a bombardier. So he understood that it doesn't matter what these guys tell you. You can't have 100% accuracy. Yeah. You're going to kill some Russians and, you know, Khrushchev is going to have to respond. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it goes. It's just, you know, this. He, he said, and he says this on the tapes, you know, it's a bunch of bullshit. These generals saying, you know, we can pinpoint the airstrikes we can do this and that he Mm -hmm. said you know something always goes wrong and he said i was a bombardier guy i mean he had this great story about once when he was in the plane and the bomb got stuck and he had to crawl down and kick it out (laughs) fell out of the plane you know he said you know shit happens you know and you're gonna kill the wrong guy (laughs) and then they're gonna have to respond and it's too late And um, and this is what he meant, sort of jumping over a bit to the side, but it's what he meant about LBJ's problem with the generals, because he didn't question them, because he didn't have the background, whereas he and Jack had the background to go, look, you know, something always goes wrong. You're going to kill, maybe you only kill two Russians, but that's all it's going to take. Yeah, right. Right. And so, you know, you don't you could kill one and you have a world war. You know, that's that's what it all it takes. So your dad, and and I don't think he gets enough credit for this, but I think your dad was instrumental in, of course, uh, in association with Jack and Bobby uh, in in creating a new international language between uh, between nations when it came to uh, avoiding the eventuality of a nuclear confrontation. So there's, there's a scene, in fact, in the movie 13 Days with Dylan Baker as Bob McNamara, where he's explaining to, I, I don't remember if it was Joint Chiefs or whatever he's saying, that there this this back and forth between, that, that were taking place with this quarantine uh, around Cuba and the movement of the, uh, of the quarantine and, and how they stopped the ships as they approached the quarantine line and everything was in fact language it was foreign policy language that was being created on the fly for the first time ever by i think that trifecta of minds between uh, your dad and of course uh, bobby and and the president is and do you see that in in your dad's writing where it does does he acknowledge the fact that, there, that he's changed foreign policy forever at that point yeah, you know, he does, and it's interesting. That's really a, a you know, wonderfully insightful point uh, on your part because this approach they had is how they uh, approached all of their policy making. Mm-hmm. you know, not only on the international but also the domestic front, if you think about it. And it was this sort of roll your sleeves up, get the job done, kind of Kennedy-esque approach is really what it was. Yeah. And sometimes they were making it up as they went along. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Jack had a vision for what he wanted to do. And, you know, and it's sort of classic thing. My dad, you know, talking about even the nuclear, the whole the whole issue, he, he said, you know, this is, this is what I want. Yeah. I don't give a damn how you do it. Mm-hmm. I don't care what you have to say. I don't care what term you have to use. Just this is the end result. Get yeah. it done. Right, right. And and that was the approach. And I think that it gave – he was – you know, Bobby and Jack had such brilliant people around him 
that he was confident giving them the ability to then go run with the ball. You know, you can't do that if you have a bunch of boobs around you because you can't you can't trust them. Um, But, you know, he was really careful to bring together these guys at all different levels. And he he didn't agree with them on everything, but he knew that they had the skill set that he that he required of them in that job. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's a a great um, a great example of that, because, you know, you're not talking a small thing. They they established a whole new role for the United States in the world order. Mm -hmm. That's not nothing. Yeah, it's really a great lesson in in nuance and pragmatism. Anyone who uh, looks at the Kennedy administration, you have to zero in on the Cuban Missile Crisis, obviously, as being the seminal moment not only in the Kennedy administration, but I think throughout American politics. It was really a turning point in terms of how we engage with other countries and certainly other countries who uh, have uh, thousands of nuclear missiles pointed at us. And and it's a level of nuance that I think gets lost in um, in the modern context, certainly in this current administration and and i think it does and i think also you know it also gets lost because we don't think of it because so many people you know sort of zero in on vietnam which which is unfortunate because it's why i think that my dad's correct that if jack had lived you know that same sort of approach and nuance would have been his approach to vietnam he would never have gotten sort of dragged down that path because he had a he had a you know as ben bradley said he had a higher vision of where he wanted to take not only this mm-hmm. country but the world yeah and and you know and i think he was not afraid to execute it cuz he had supreme confidence in his own ability which mm-hmm. is another thing that a lot of presidents you know they need that but they don't always have it sure and um and it's funny one of the things i i wanted to say and this sort of demonstrates it though it's on the domestic front um when it when if you remember back to when they were trying to get meredith registered during the civil rights you know during that whole upheaval in the civil rights yeah era and um and bobby was on the phone and there's this marvelous story on the tapes where and it's the same thing that during the cuban missile crisis the same approach you know they're sitting there jack is sitting there on the phone and you know they're they're managing this you know in that sort of kennedy style of you know that what he called the hurry up offense you know <laughs> get these guys in place go do this let's get this guy registered let's mm-hmm. do this that and the other thing and this wonderful one of bobby's guys told this great story about you know it was a saturday and this just demonstrates the kennedy approach to solving problems yeah um it was saturday he went in to do some extra work at the justice department and bobby walked by and bobby said you doing anything this afternoon and the guy was like well not really just working here you know catching my paperwork bobby said great come with me and he said the next thing i knew i was on an airplane headed down to mississippi and I'm told that I'm now in charge of the marshals and getting this guy safely in. And he said, I thought, what the hell? I'm a corporate lawyer from San Francisco. I don't know anything about this stuff. (laughs) And Bobby said, oh, you'll figure it out. How hard can this be? Mm -hmm. Go. Yeah. And he said, I'm sitting on the plane. He's this very short. He became a federal judge, short guy. And he said, I thought... He said, Helen, I was so short that when I got there, I had to stand on a table so the marshals could see me when I was giving them orders. 
and I'm in my, you know, Saturday outfit, you know what I'm saying? He said, you know, so they were surprised to see me, but I was sent there by the attorney general and the president. And he said, I learned a couple of things when it comes to the Kennedys. He said, and especially Bobby, which is when they say to you, what are you doing today? Mm-hmm. Never say nothing. Never, ever tell them nothing. And he said, and if they say, come with me, always ask where. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. Oh, my God. Isn't it a great story? Yeah, absolutely. And there was one thing I wanted to mention, too, and and this is another thing that I think gets lost over the generations, and certainly now in our, our modern perspective, we tend to think of foreign policy uh, between or uh, as a binary state you're either weak on foreign policy right. or you're strong on foreign policy and and what your dad was able to do with uh, with Jack and Bobby I think was establish a middle ground for foreign policy where you could be strong and you could also be conciliatory at the same time where you could leave wiggle room to avoid a catastrophe and and I think we we tend to lose sight of of that because it's it's a little more difficult to grasp from a, a lay perspective well, or as a citizen perspective. It is, you know, and it's funny. And also, Jack thought about things in a way that, you know, because, and maybe this is because they were in the war, but mm-hmm. there's another great story on the tapes where he talks about Laos. And if you remember, that was a big, that was another hot point for oh, them. Yeah, yeah. And he said, you know, the generals came in and he, they wanted to send all this military stuff and blah, blah, blah. And my dad said, Jack, you know, did what most presidents do in those circumstances, which is, okay, let's do this, this, and this. And then he started getting these, my dad started getting reports back, and he and the president had this conversation where we're sending all this military stuff, you know, out to them, and they're going to fight the war, and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Well, the guns we're sending are, because they're in stature, smaller than American soldiers, then everything sent didn't work. It didn't fit for them. The guns were too long. Mm. The uniforms were too big. <laughs> nothing worked. And, you know, and Jack talked to my dad about the fact that, you know, a few week, weeks later, the generals come in and they want more. Yeah. And he said, I looked at them and said, but I'm reading these reports that in the papers, these are newspaper reports, the stuff you're sending doesn't work. They don't fit. The guns are too big. The uniforms don't fit. These guys don't, they don't know how to operate the equipment. You know, it's sitting in, it's sitting lined up in yards because they don't know what the hell the, the tanks do. They don't know how to turn them on. And the generals, and you, you're coming to me and you're wanting more of the yeah. same stuff. It's not working. <laughs> Does it right. not occur to you that we need to reapproach this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, he said the generals just looked at him like, No, that didn't occur to them. You know, I mean, it was like Kennedy, my dad called it the the Kennedy think outside of the box approach to politics and international policy, which is, and it's something that we don't have at all now, you know, which is that, you know, let's just think outside the box and think, talk to people and see what's our best approach rather than just assuming if we, we are Americans and whatever we say is right, and you'll figure it out. Mm-hmm, right, right. So let me ask you at this point, uh, Helen, because we've now been talking for an hour and 10 minutes. And of course, I could talk for the next. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> don't so apologize. I, I'm, I'm about to apologize to you because we've gone so long, but I could I still have so much more I want to talk to you about. Um, but if you need to take a break uh, at all right now, we can can stop and of course i can cut all of this out of the the 
the final show. And uh, so if you want to take a break or if you need to go, we can we can start to wrap up at this point. I just wanted to check in and see how you were with time and, and energy level and so on. If you need to go oh, take no, a bathroom break or something. I just don't something. want to hold you because there's so much material and sometimes, you know, I don't oh, want yeah. to have you glaze over. Well, no, <laughs> you'll never get me to glaze over. Not on this topic. Never, ever, ever. So, you know, of course, as I said, I could keep talking with you about this for, for a long, long time. And I still have a, a few more topics that we can get into. So I just wanted to make sure that uh, you were okay. Oh, no, I appreciate it. I just, because to me, it's so interesting because I was so much younger and, you know, my dad was, you know, my dad, but I, I just didn't know this side of him. So it's fascinating to me. And, and you know, honestly, I, I would have said to you that when I started this, like when Chris Matthews first talked to me about all this material, mm-hmm. I remember thinking, oh, my God, Jack Kennedy's been done and done and done. What new could we find? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Chris was right. The more you learn about Jack Kennedy through my dad's stories and tapes and everything, there, you know, it, the more fascinated you become. I mean, yeah. I, I would, I don't know how you feel, but I would love to have been able to spend just a few minutes with the guy. I mean, oh yeah. You know, he, he, for him to get people to do the things they did, you know, mm-hmm. they really believed they could do anything when they were in his presence. Yeah. You know, we don't have presidents like that anymore. No, certainly no. not now. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's my opinion that we, as Americans uh, throughout our history, we have faced three moments in which major, major potential for good work was lost. And that was when uh, Reconstruction was shut down after the Civil War, where I I think the South was allowed to backslide into uh, a lot of things that uh, led to, obviously, Jim Crow, uh, neo-slavery, civil rights issues, and so on and so on and so on. Then there was another time, I think, and that was the, the death of President Kennedy, where an extreme amount of potential for changing the course of the world for the better was lost. And then, of course, the next one is 9-11, where I think what happened after 9-11 was a tragedy in and of itself, because we could have used 9-11 as a way to unite the world around things that would positively positively affect change and and make the world a better place instead we went to a couple of we went into a couple of wars and things became more it divisive still ongoing you yeah, know we're yeah. still in afghanistan yeah exactly I mean, right and, and i you mean know, it's you know my father would be appalled but you know we're still in afghanistan yeah i mean staggering no, no clue as to how to get out this right. is what he worried about you mm-hmm. know things like that so let's talk and, about uh let's talk about dallas uh for a second um, and your dad was in the motorcade, uh, and he and Dave Powers had, uh, been interviewed after the fact by the Warren Commission by Arlen Specter, in fact, specifically. And they told Arlen Specter that they heard, uh, three shots. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to bring up some sort of controversy or to say who's wrong and who's right. I just oh, no, want to no. get, I, get I mean, some information. It's, I, it's in the, you know, I cover all this in the book. So right, you, right. You, you have to be willing to talk about it. Okay. Well, perfect. So, but later, um, Tip O'Neill evidently had a conversation with your dad and Tip O'Neill reported back, allegedly, that your dad said he heard two shots from the grassy knoll. And and I, I want to get into the, you know, where your dad's emotional state was in the, the days and, and certainly the hours after the assassination. But in terms of the details, well, where did, did your dad actually land on all of this? And was there a private point of view that differed from a public point of view or was that all one and the same? 
No, you know, and it's very interesting. It's a great question because what I chose to do because I, you know, I covered this in, in depth in the book, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's his voice. I try, What I tried to do is let him tell his experiences of that day sure. because, you know, I didn't want to get in the way of it and I didn't want to be interpreting it and things like that. And what I what I think happened is that his best his best um, sort of memory of everything is what's and I don't mean it arrogantly but it's what's in this book and it comes from the tapes because at this time he was as sharp as could be mm-hmm. and I think as as you know th- sort of things went on in his life and they were difficult Bobby was murdered and and then you know he lost her governor I think his his recollections are, are not as sharp if you go later so I think that's where you get the different you know the different versions mm-hmm. um, so what I did for this book is I went with what he said on the tapes at this time because they were to Sandra Van Oker and they were not for publication you know right. and it was he and Bobby did these tapes together although it's my dad speaking but they were doing it for a book he and Bobby had planned to do mm-hmm. and um, and so he's very clear you know in this memory which I think is the best memory we have is they were in the car behind and he heard you know he heard the three shots and what he remembers distinctly is, um, although he doesn't remember saying it, but he obviously did because Dave reported it, but he said the final shot, you know, lifted John Kennedy out of his seat, and yeah. he said, shook him like a rag doll. Yeah. And he said, just from my experience in the war, he said, I, I said he's dead. Mm-hmm. And he said, I had no memory of saying that, but Dave said that's what he said. And then the in this book, we really go into, I go into depth from his perspective what it was like. And this is uh, the book you're... not the gory, book you're, the but bo- it's, it's quite, you feel like you're in a movie because... Yeah. You know, they they wanted to take the president's body out of there, and according to Texas law, they they weren't allowed to. Mm-hmm. So this this very moving story, um, and, it, and it's the Dallas chapter of how they essentially they stole the president the president's body. Yeah, and um, and they you know, and and he tells what it was like. He said they. You know, he remembers he threw the guy out of the ambulance and he drove the ambulance, which is scary all by itself because my dad driving is frightening. Wait, wait, this is I've never um, I've never heard this. Your your dad drove the ambulance with the president in it. Yes, that was his memory of it. And um, and so what I do in the book is I just repeat it. You know, we my editor and I decided to not try to interpret we just let mm-hmm. him tell the story because yeah. it's so powerful that you you know you, you don't need um you know any, anybody else talking so then he talks about how they got to love field and they get the the body on and they think johnson is gone because his agreement with johnson was that johnson would leave and so he's thinking he's getting on Air Force Two, yeah. and he's got the the body, and he orders the pilot, Godfrey, orders them to take off because he's terrified that they're going to be arrested at any moment. Oh, my God. And he tells this story about, you know, he's numb, and he's afraid Jackie's going to have a heart attack because she's going into shock, and he's afraid the police are going to come up and shoot the tires out of the plane while they try to take off. 
and he gives the order, you know, because he really was that powerful in the Kennedy administration. Yeah. He says, we're out of here, take off. And it comes back to him through Godfrey, who was Kennedy's guy, and the he was, you know, and it was ironically the press secretary that my dad had just had let go, mm-hmm. but it was Kilduff who my dad had fired, you know, the previous to the the Dallas trip, but he let him take this last trip. And um, Kilduff sends the word back: tell Ken O'Donnell he's not in charge of the country anymore. <laughs> Wow. And he said that was the first time he realized they were on Air Force One because um, he just didn't – he assumed Johnson had left. He didn't know Johnson was on the plane. Yeah. And, um, and so then that's – this whole chapter goes through this very moving moment where he has to go talk to Johnson and just – he keeps using the word he uses repeatedly is numb. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he tried to get through to Bobby, but he couldn't and – you know, they go through the whole swearing in, and there's some. I sent you those pictures, very moving oh, yeah, pictures. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that it turns out, you know, it's ironic because at the time they were upset that Johnson wanted to be sworn in on the plane. But my dad admits later, and we talk about this in the book, that, you know, it was a brilliant political decision on Johnson's part, and that's why he mm-hmm. did it. Because what Johnson wanted to show the world, less the country, more the world, you know, going back to our Cuban Missile Crisis discussion, but he wanted to show the world that the ship of state was going straight ahead. Yeah. You know, we'd lost a president, but the ship of state, the United States was fine. Mm-hmm. And we're moving straight ahead. And he said, Johnson was right. He Mm. said, I was wrong. And Johnson was right to do what he did. But he said it took him, it took him a long time to realize that. I mean, it took him being all the way on the other side for him to realize that, you know, it took him like a year or so to realize that Johnson had done the exact right thing. Yeah. And he he must have, they were furious. Yeah. And your dad must have been in a complete state of shock anyway. Uh, I mean, especially getting on Air Force One. shock because they yeah. had no you know he said they were numb and you know afterwards he said johnson told all these stories about you know the kennedy people on the plane being rude to the johnson people and he said what kennedy people there were three of us yeah wow. you know one was dead and then it was dave jackie and me yeah there yeah. were no kennedy people right and then so um, in fact your dad is in that famous photo of 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 lbj taking the oath with jackie there and and i believe yeah and and it, it's it's one of the most striking photos in the history of the united states that uh this is a major major changeover even though lbj did pick up a lot of the kennedy agenda at least in that first year um, it was a huge, monumental change in American government as far as uh, the, the differences, be- as we talked about earlier, the difference between uh, LBJ and JFK. And so, and your dad was right there witnessing all of that in, in what can only be termed a, a state of extreme stress. I would imagine that would be unlike anything most of us have ever experienced ever uh, to be in that position. Yeah, and you know, it's funny, and I realized that it was really tough to, I have to say that there's, there's two chapters. One is, da- I just, I don't know what you name it, so I just named it Dallas, November yeah. 22nd. And then the second chap- part of that is, uh, chapter after chapter six is a long journey home. Yeah. And it talks about what they went through on, on the plane. Mm-hmm. And it's this transition of power. You know, Johnson, as he should have, called a national security meeting. And they come back, and Bill Moore, it's a great Bill Moore. Um, comes back and says, who's, you know, comes back and said, Kenny, you know, 
um, the president was holding a national security meeting. My father just, you know, Jackie didn't want him to leave. So um, he said, but he said, I just said to him, you know, I, I don't have the stomach for it. I yeah. just can't. Yeah. And he said it was his intention to to leave the president. You know, when they returned, he said, my job was over. Yeah. My job was to get Jackie safely into Bobby's hands. Mm. And he said, I didn't intend to stay. But he said, I Johnson wouldn't let me leave. And he said, I realized afterwards, Johnson was right to make him stay because yeah. um, he needed him there. He had, you know, he understood the country you know, his administration, it was, this was all going to be a transition. You can't have all these guys leave because then the message to the country is, well, something's wrong with this guy. All the Kennedy people left the next day. What yeah. the hell? Yeah. You know, and so that's why Johnson wanted all the Kennedy people to stay on to show, again, that shift of state is moving forward. It's that consistency. Right. right. And then he had this kind of crazy idea that, in my view, that he could make them all into Johnson men. And that was just never going to happen. No. You know, but, but that was his, his belief in himself was such that, you know, once I get them in here, they'll become my guys. And that just never happened. Mm-hmm. So and there's, there's a great story, which I, I think you'd appreciate. I, sure. um, I think this is a very uh, sort of shows a lot of what the country was going through. There was a, a party. Um, this is Johnson is now president. My dad's back to work at the White House. Bobby has transitioned. Now he's running for Senate because he's just got to get out of here. And um, they decide to do a party at the F Street Club. You know where that is in Washington. It's still yeah. there. And it's Jackie's first outing since the president was murdered. Hmm. And it's a big deal, needless to say. And everyone who's everyone's going to be there. And there's some, and I believe, I want to say Camelot or something like that was showing afterwards. I mean, they're going to something afterwards. So everybody is in black tie and the gowns. And you remember how people dressed then. Oh, sure. But my dad was at at work with with LBJ. So they arrived at the F Street Club in suits, business suits. And he said to him, it was so poignant because Bobby was there and he said, um, you know, Jackie was there and she looked, you know, beautiful considering what she'd just been through, you know, in the last mm-hmm. year. And everyone is surrounding she and Bobby and all the swish you know, swishy people are over there. And the president of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, comes in and Bob, not one person went over to him. Nobody looked up. Wow. Nobody walked over. He just stood there and he said, my father said he stood there in his baggy suit and he did not, what would you do? He didn't know what to do with himself. So he, he and my dad walked over and they went to the bar and he, my dad said, I was going to go see Jackie, but I couldn't just leave him there, you yeah. know? So he said, we went over to the bar and had a drink and he said, not one person turned around, came over or anything, didn't even acknowledge they were there. Mm-hmm. And he said, after a drink, um, they were all going to this other event afterwards and my dad had obviously been invited, but he he said the president turned to him and said, I guess you're going with them, too, because everyone was invited but me. Yeah, wow. And my father said, I just looked at him, he said, no, I wasn't invited either, because he said I didn't want him to feed, you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, so the president said, well, would you come back with me to the White House and eat dinner with me? And mm-hmm. my dad was like, sure. <laughs> you know, we didn't know what else to do. So, I mean, he said, I couldn't just leave him there. So he said, we left and we're in the limo going back to the White House. And we, they weren't talking. My dad was not a chatty guy anyway. But he said, I didn't know what to, what do you say? Yeah. And he said, finally, the president turned to him and said, you know, Kenny, I mean, I after all, 
I am the president of the United States, you know. They go to that high. I mean, I didn't want it this way. Yeah, yeah. But wow. I am the president of the United States. And my dad said, just, he said I felt terrible because I thought, yeah, he is. You know, somebody could have said, hello, Mr. President. Mm-hmm. And he said they went back, they had dinner and too much to drink. And then <laughs> he said he got home late that night and he called Bobby at Hickory Hill and he said, I just gave him hell. <laughs> and, you know, Bobby said, he said, I said to Bobby, you pick up the phone and you apologize to him. I don't care what your feelings are. He's the president. You know, I said, you don't do that. <laughs> And he said, Bobby said it just never occurred to him. He just didn't think about it. What was and, uh, um, a I'm great sorry, story because it shows you, you know, it wasn't easy to be Lyndon Johnson in those days. No, you know? no, absolutely not. I mean, no one would envy that position to take over after, you know, it'd be like if uh, if you're a comedian and George Carlin opens for you. Where do you go from yeah. there? You know what I mean? <laughs> comedian, you understand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's the same kind of thing and with that kind of setup. So LBJ certainly needed to hit the ground running uh, after the assassination. D- you know, fast forwarding a little bit, obviously your dad ran uh, Bobby Kennedy. 1968 campaign and uh but i you know and i'm, I'm skipping over he he was his kind of right-hand guy but he never actually was the campaign manager oh okay and everybody always asked me why and the reason is and this is interesting because this was a point of friction between them hmm. bobby wanted my dad to be to him what my dad was for jack i see but my dad felt that two things. One, that Bobby needed his own guy. Mm-hmm. He needed his own Ken O'Donnell. Yeah. And Bobby's argument was, I have him. It's you. Hello. <laughs> and um, But the other concern my dad had was that his politics had, were – Jack Kennedy was, was not a liberal, as you know. <laughs> you know, he was much more conservative, and so was my dad. Yeah. And, again, not today's terminology. I'm talking about at that period of time. Oh, sure, yeah. And Bob, as you know, became much more liberal by 1968 because the country was changing. Yeah. And my dad worried that his, his view was not – you know, he wasn't current enough for what Bobby needed. And um, Bobby just refused to accept that. He just, you know, Bobby, I mean, he said, my dad said once, I love Bobby, but he can be a pain in the ass because he doesn't hear no if he doesn't want to hear it. (laughs) And so he ended up working on the campaign anyway because Bobby just refused to hear my dad's sort of logical, which is that you need a younger generation of guys and the country's in a different place than it was in 1960. Sure. Yeah. And, and this is interesting that your dad recognized that shortcoming in himself, that uh, he couldn't bring yeah. that younger attitude to that campaign, which was all about, I mean, 100% about young people and about Vietnam. And uh, yeah, it seems that that is, that is a level of self-consciousness that you don't typically see in politics where you go, Oh wait, that's, that's kind of out of my depth. No one does that anymore. They say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll take the job. No. Give, me, give me a check. <laughs> you know? No, and, it, and it's very funny because, you know, Bobby, when he went up to the Senate, he and Jackie wanted my dad to go run his, you know, work either work for him in New York or go work for him in, in his Senate office. Mm-hmm. And my dad, he could be so funny, but he just said to Bobby, he said, I don't want one of those little pocket things, you know, those government people. I'm not yeah. one of those guys. <laughs> Right. You know, he said, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm the guy with Jack who's the outrider. You know what I mean? I'm not the guy in the office. Mm-hmm. And Bobby was like, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, if I can do it, you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, was your uh, my dad. 
understood that about himself, for better or worse. Was your dad at the Ambassador Hotel? No, and actually that's how we I end uh, launching LBJ because mm-hmm. um, he was in Washington at, at the Mayflower Hotel, another mm-hmm. place I know you know well. It's yeah. a beautiful old hotel. Oh, sure. And he um, was here because he was doing stuff. They were setting up some stuff for Bobby on this end, and mm-hmm. Dad still was very tight with the DNC. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he was running sort of the, the national stuff for Bobby. Mm-hmm. And it's just this wonderful story at the end of the book where um, he talks to Bobby on the phone. And I want to see if you don't mind, it's a short just section. I would love to if I can find the page. Oh, sure. Yeah. Read just a, it's a few words to you. Yeah, go ahead. Right I think he says it better than, you know, than I could. Okay, sure. Uh, uh, so there, the day would come. Kennedy declared when the break between Johnson and Kennedy over Vietnam was inevitable. Mm-hmm. Bobby chose the path he chose to challenge Johnson, not for some personal ego-driven purpose, but rather because he knew he had to stop the war raging in Vietnam, the war raging in our cities, and he was the one to bring the country together. Kenny recalled the last time he and Bobby spoke, and this is a quote from my dad. He had just won California, and he said to me shortly before going down to give his acceptance speech, you know, he said, Kenny, do you think I'm doing the right thing, dividing the party and maybe the country like this? Mm-hmm. I said to him, and I meant what I said, Bobby, you are the only man who can bring this country together Mm -hmm. and change the direction in which we are going. You are the only man who can bring blacks and whites together and the only man who can stop this awful war and save our country. There was a moment of silence, and then in typical Bobby fashion, he said, well, gosh, when you put it that way... Both laughed. He then said, thanks, Kenny. We wow. hung up. I never spoke to him again. Unbelievable. Yeah, that just gave me chills. That's, uh, wow. I, I, you know, I can't even imagine the sense of loss and devastation after both Dallas and California, um, with both those being kind of bookends of, of the 1960s in a way, in terms of tragedy. Uh, you had uh, JFK, uh, Martin Luther King, and then then Bobby Kennedy and your dad basically sitting in the front row for all of that. Um, and then knowing uh, that, and, and I, I don't mean to be indelicate about this, but both of your parents. Oh, no, I'm, you can. Yeah, well, both of a shooter, you can say whatever. Well, I mean, the official word is that both of your parents died of alcohol-related uh, symptoms. <laughs> and I, I tend to think, in a more romantic sense, uh, about their deaths and, and some of the reactions, obviously, of some of the people who were also very close to the Kennedys uh, who, who went on to n- not live very long after those years. And right. I, I have more of this analysis that they died of broken hearts and not necessarily from a you know, like a relationship point of view, but from a, a friendship and potential and, and the promise that they offered and then having that all ripped away, that has to be heartbreaking on, on a very profound level. And I, I tend to believe that, that your parents were more impacted by that and alcohol was just kind of secondary. That was the method. Yeah, of I, their- I, I, I think that's really true. And I think that for both of them, you know, my mother was very, I mean, she was devoted to mm. my dad and she was devoted to Bobby. 
And, um, you know, they had really, and this is something I think even I continue to learn. And when I wrote The Irish Brotherhood, I realized the extent to which, you know, they're, they, you know, they were devoted to, to Jack's success and they had this vision for what he could do for the country. And then when he was murdered, they, they sort of never, you know, they never quite recovered, but then everybody got behind Bobby and, um, and then it happened again. And I really think that they did die of broken hearts because they both died, as I said, so young, 49 and 53. And I just think that they never, they never recovered from, especially Bobby's death. I I think they never recovered from Jack, but Bobby was just, I don't even know mentally how you sort of work your way through that, you know, when it happens twice. Mm -hmm. And I think for my dad, the hardest thing for him was he felt somehow, especially with Jack, he felt responsible. And that he, you know, it was his job. He ran the Secret Service. It was his job. His last conversation with Jack as they're getting on the plane to go to Dallas is, you know, Jack talks about it being Kennedy weather. And the last thing he says to my father is, you know, Kenny, you always have my back. And my father said, and I always did till I didn't. And, you know, and the reason I wanted to end the book um, the way I did launching LBJ with his last conversation with Bobby was because what horrible part when Bobby died is that um, he felt he had pushed him into running. And see, Teddy and Steve Smith and those guys wanted wanted Bobby to wait because they thought this 68 was fraud. It was a difficult time in the country. They wanted him to wait till 72. And my dad was one of the hardcore people that really pushed him to run. And I, I really believe it haunted him um, because you know, he felt maybe he should have waited. You know, I don't think he was able to ever let that go. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that was why one of the tragedies was, you know, how you hit that sort of sense that maybe I maybe I should have done something else. Maybe mm-hmm. I should have stopped this. But you know, you and I know doesn't life doesn't work that way. Sadly. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's such a sad story the way things ended up turning out. Uh, did you were you cognizant of of uh, you know what happened when your parents died? I mean, were you aware of what was going on at that point in time? And and if so, I mean, oh, how yeah. did you I mean, how did you take and that? And that's one of the things I I started um, a common good. I addressed it yeah. in a common good in the introduction, which I you know I'm not sure I should have or not. I got a lot of grief about it. Really? Um, and and um, but. I I felt that you couldn't, I I needed to address it for myself because it's always, you know, as a kid, you just don't understand, you know? Um, But I I have come to realize something Senator Kennedy, when my parents died, Senator Kennedy kind of stepped in and really, you know, he was, God, he was terrific to me. He really was sort of a father figure kind of guiding me so much. And Mm. he, he taught me something very important, which is that he said, don't focus on the sadness. And maybe yeah. this is what he learned himself, you know, because he went through such tragedy. He said, what I've learned is he said, I always focus on the good days and the things they accomplished in life. And yeah. I don't focus on the tragedy mm-hmm. because if I focus on the tragedy, I can't go forward the next day. Mm, wow. And so what I've learned to do is, is now as I'm writing my third book on this sort of era is, is um, to focus on the amazing story and the things they accomplished and what great guys they were and how much they believed in the country and then use that to inspire another generation rather than the tragedy. Cause I think the tragedy 
you know, can consume you otherwise. I think the senator was right about that. Mm -hmm. And you actually worked for Ted Kennedy, didn't you? Because, I mean, the reason I'm, uh, yeah. one of the reasons I'm asking, too, is that a lot of uh, current analysis of the Kennedy brothers is kind of turning out that, uh, that Ted Kennedy was actually the smartest politician, actually the best at politics of the three brothers, um, who, who, you know, obviously of, of, of uh, Bobby Jack and, and Ted, that Ted was the one who had the real talent for politics. And, and how did you, well, where do you land on that? Cause I, cause I, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to say because Bobby was a master and a, and a pit bull and all these things. Uh, but you know, and I also admire Ted Kennedy quite a bit. So wh where's uh, where's your analysis on well, that? It, it's interesting because I and and I say this to people. You know, it's clear that that um, Jack Kennedy didn't have the patience for the Senate, and <laughs> you know, he wasn't going to stay there long. I mean, yeah. he wouldn't. He would never have been what Senator Kennedy, what Ted Kennedy was. He could never have been that senator that stayed there forever because he just had this need. He he knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to be in the White House and. You know, that was his plan. Yeah. And um, I think that was always his plan. Well, you know, and also just real quick Bobby, about real quick about Jack. I mean, didn't he have the sense that he was going to die young, too? And that might have accelerated his ambitions. I, I believe that. I, my, you know, my dad talked about that and he said he felt that Jack had this kind of and maybe it was from all the illnesses he had growing up. And yeah. it's extraordinary that he got up every day considering how sick he was. Yeah. Um, but he, he just he made the most of every single day, you know, and he had this sort of driving sort of what I call that Kennedy need to keep moving, you mm -hmm. know, and, and Bobby was very similar, but Bobby was not, you know, he was not, my dad said he was just the least politically savvy person you ever wanted to meet. That was yeah. not his thing. And he, but he never planned to be the out front guy. He was always mm -hmm. going to be behind the scenes. And the only reason he became the politician was because his brother died, you yeah. know, that his brother was murdered and he had to step into that role. Um, and he didn't, what, where else do you go? He didn't want to be attorney general. So he was either going to run for governor of Massachusetts or Senate from New York. And I think with Ted is that um, he had just the right skill set. You yeah. know, he really loved the Senate. He loved the give and take. He loved the relationships. You know, I really believe, I don't think he wanted to be president. I think he, everybody around him wanted him to be president. Mm -hmm. But I think he loved being a great senator. Yeah. Um, but I think he always had to live with that sort of expectation that, you know, you're up next. <laughs> and I'm sure that had to be a real burden, I would imagine. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine after 1968, the burden must have been just the weight of the world. I can't even imagine being yeah. in this place. Yeah. And you have all these kids who, you know, who you're also responsible for. And then what people don't realize is that he also had a lot of kids that weren't his kids, kids like me and a lot of others who mm. he felt responsible for yeah. because their parents had served his brothers. Yeah. So he, you know, I, my, one of my favorite stories about him is um, I was uh, at American University when I was working for him. And, you know, honestly, I just couldn't do the tuition on this particular semester. So I was going to have to do it. Probably most people have to do these days, especially, but, you know, was drop out and then do it another way. Yeah. And, um, and I, I told somebody, I don't even know who I told in the office, but I didn't tell him because I didn't want to upset him. 
So anyway, he got wind of it, and then I was at, at work, and I got a phone call, and it was it was from the bursar at American University. It was a clerk, whoever it is behind the thing that takes when you pay your your um you know wasn't when you pay your bill. Yeah, when you pay your tuition. And they, yeah. yeah, and they said, Miss O'Donnell, you know this is so and so from American University. We have Senator Edward Kennedy in front of us in line, and he's got his checkbook. He wants to. He's got a check, is what it was, and he's going to pay your tuition. But he, I just need to make sure that's okay with you. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, how the hell did he even know? You know, I couldn't believe it. But I thought, you know, instead of him coming to me and saying, you know, blah 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 blah, you know, any nonsense, he just thought, well, typical Kennedy. Okay, well, I got to take care of it. So he did. What a great story. And, um, and then our agreement was that when I could, I'd pay him back, which I did. And then he sent it back to me because um, he said the point was the lesson, not that he needed the money. Wow. It was to teach me when someone loans you money, you, you know, this is this kind of thing. You know, it was, it's just a great story. You know, yeah. it was just a lesson that he had done this for me and I needed to pay him back. Yeah. And um, and so it's a cool, it's a little story, but it's a good story, I think. Yeah, in fact, I, I always thought that the Affordable Care Act should have been named after Ted Kennedy uh, because he did so much as far as getting that so close to, the, I mean, he died before it was finally passed, but he did so much to get it to that point. He, I mean, obviously, that was one of his wheelhouse issues was health care. Right. And, and thanks in part to his efforts, I have health care now. Uh, millions of people also have health care. And, uh, and in fact, you know, I always play on my show, I always play the sound of Rachel Maddow. Um, talking about how I, I won the award for the uh, Ma Rachel Maddow headline of the week. This was uh, back when the Affordable Care Act was being debated. And so I actually got a mention on the Rachel Maddow show, but the reason she mentioned me is because I wrote a piece for the Huffington Post in which I said the Affordable Care Act should be named after Ted Kennedy. So it's this weird uh, oh, conglomeration of the three, uh, the three names all coming up at the same time and me just going, wow, I can't believe that actually happened. <laughs> so I constantly beat well, it to death on my I, show. I have to say to you, maybe this is, you know, if it was named after Ted Kennedy, maybe um, Trump wouldn't have been so eager to destroy it. That's, uh, you know what? That's, in, that's entirely he possible. Probably, you know what? He probably would have supported it if yeah. it was named after Ted Kennedy. So and the last thing I wanted to ask you, Helen, is um, the, the thing I keep thinking about in hearing your about your body of work and all the books you've written and, and, and how they've kind of centered around your dad's career and, and the Kennedy years and so on. Um, you know, the great documentarian Ken Burns always talks about how uh, after he did the Civil War documentary, it was going to be very difficult for him to dig into another war story. And he eventually went on to do uh, the World War II documentary series called The War and then eventually Vietnam. And so he did get into it again. But he said that the reason he didn't want to do it again uh, at the time and in the early 90s was because it was so hard to be steeped in the the war and the tragedy around it uh 24 7 as a filmmaker have you found that uh you know in addition to obviously connecting in this very unique way with your father and with his life and times do you find also that the the grief that surrounds uh his life especially in the 60s and into the 70s uh you know is is too much to handle sometimes do you feel like wow i i, I really need to I need to write about rainbows and puppies next time because all of this grief is... Do you find that? Uh, well, you know, it's funny. 
Because I, and I, I have to say it's a great question because I, especially my siblings, you know, they get very emotional, you know, I mean, my, yeah. my older brother, Kenny Jr., um, he said to me, he was reading the Irish Brotherhood the other, <laughs> you know, this was when it first came out and he called me and he said, you know what, I'm so mad at you because you make me cry every time <laughs> I read this book wow. because, you know, he remembers all this. And, and mm-hmm. for me, it, I, I, it can be overwhelming, but what I've learned to do is, is to focus on, and, and I'm really adamant about this. I try to focus on the good things they did, the happy days, the the amazing, you know, even the things where it's sort of up or down and the mistakes they made because they, you know, they didn't get it right all the time. And they, they also did crazy stuff, you know, if you look at some of their Hollywood stuff and some of those days. <laughs> but, you know, what I try to focus on is, is um, how much, even though they all lived very short lives, how much they accomplished. Yeah. And um, and then that keeps you from focusing too much on the tragedies because I think the what-ifs would, you know, I think they'd eat you alive, which I think they did to a lot of those people. And oh, I yeah. think you have to stay clear of that. Yeah. And, um, and I have... In this material, I mean, I have the there's a couple more things I'd like stories I'd like to tell, and then I feel like my dad's all of his tapes and everything is out there. Yeah. And then I I think then I'd switch and 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 to something else because I think that my job is to sort of be his voice because he didn't yeah. get a chance to do it. And then once I reach the end of that, then then it's out there. As, as Chris Matthews said, then you you told the story, <laughs> right? And people will have to judge. Yeah, it's interesting. When I got to meet uh, Ted Sorensen, uh, one of the things he was talking about at the time and was very passionate about was uh, there were a series of movies that came out maybe 10 years ago, uh, 10, 12 years ago. Um, I forget exactly when, but one of them was, I I think, a more recent one, which is based on the Bill O'Reilly book, Killing Kennedy. And then there was some other other documentary series that was done by, I want to say... Someone who's involved with the reality television shows, and the name is slipping out of my head because my head is so full of Russian names right now. So I can't remember the guy, but but there was a series of movies. Yeah, they weren't very. They were kind of smear pieces on, and these were in the form of miniseries for TV smear pieces about the Kennedy years. And Ted Sorensen was really upset about all of the myriad inaccuracies in them. Did you? Did you have the same reaction to some of those pieces that, geez, this is kind of anti-Kennedy propaganda uh, and shouldn't be out there? It's completely inaccurate. I know, in fact, Ted Sorensen's campaigned actively against uh, those movies or those miniseries. Did you uh, have the same reaction? You know, it's funny because I remember that. They really went, you know, there was a time when people wouldn't dare do that because of, you know, or if they did it, they they had to expect an onslaught, you know, the, the... Kennedys were a little more, you know, they were they were more centralized than the the older generation was still around, and they would go after these guys, you know, much to their credit. And nowadays, you know, with the media being what it is, you it's very hard because you know there you it, it's hard to find the outlets where they actually come from, and and also, you know, the the Kennedys don't have the power they used to to shut some of this nonsense down. Mm-hmm. So and and I find that a lot is I sometimes I talk to people and I'm amazed at how ignorant they are about about the facts yeah so um my what i try to do is convince them they need to you know they if you you have to read my book but read chris matthew's book or doris kearns or you know what i mean deal with facts Mm -hmm. not you know not made up stories yeah um but it's not easy i even see that on my facebook page you know i'm amazed sometimes some of the stuff that gets out there and you just have to um 
relentlessly go at it with the facts. You can't yeah. allow people to create their own reality. I, I mean, mean, did they? You, uh, and I'm just, I'm, I'm just now researching now, uh, seeing this. It was Joel Cernow who created the Kiefer Sutherland's uh, show Twenty Four, who produced this miniseries called The Kennedys, and that was the one I was specifically referencing that Ted Sorensen was really angry about. And so, did uh, it was a bunch. Oh, that I think that's the one I'm thinking of. It was yeah. awful, wasn't it? I oh mean, yeah, it yeah, just, just terrible. It was basically an exploitative thing about Kennedy's uh, uh, extramarital affairs and so on and it came out around uh 2010 i want to say and it was just it was widely panned as being just bogus and and yeah you know, i'm just curious because you're so steeped in all of your dad's uh, writings and memoirs of, of that period of time uh, th- did they even bother to talk to you about this uh documentary series when they were producing it no, I think they know that they um I I've never talked to any of those guys because I think if you are going to de- they know if you're going to deal with facts they don't want to yeah. talk to you because then they can't make it up. Yeah. And um and so I I never heard from any of those guys. <laughs> um and and to me, you know, as Matthew said, that's a real sign of whether somebody's really doing it right or not. You yeah. know what I mean? If they're not going to get in touch with the people that actually know the facts, yeah. you know, they're just we, they, you know, they're going to they're going to just make it up as they go. And mm. I think you have to um you know, my dad used to say because you know, he had to put up with even a lot of it in his later years, and it really ticked him off, you know, and he would sort of go after people. Um, but but it's harder to do now, and I think that, you know, what you kind of have to do is, um, Senator Kennedy said his approach was to straight-arm them, <laughs> <laughs> which I guess, was, you know, and because, you know, if if they didn't, you know, you just you can't deal with them because these people want to just sell whatever it is, you know? Yeah, yeah right. And, um, and it's interesting because one of the things that, and this is something I want to mention, my next project is called The Watchman Cometh, and it's it's going to be, and it'll be out, you know, a year from now, and it's, it's about Bobby and Dad and those guys during the late 1950s when they were working at the Rackets Committee and um, running for president behind the scenes. Wow. And it's not sort of the tedious part of the story, but it's, it's going to be kind of the kind of whodunit part of it, you know, and, and what I'd like to do is develop it into a six to 12 episode series for say Netflix or Amazon or something like that. Oh yeah. And, yeah. um, and somebody, several people said to me, well, if you're going to do that, you've got to fictionalize it because otherwise it's very hard to get these things done. But I thought, you know, if you really, you know, we talked earlier about the film 13 days, you know, you could really do take some of this material and, and do a really great series and you don't have to go into nonsense. You know, there's mm-hmm. enough meat there on the bone. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's wonderful news. And in fact, I was the last question I was going to ask you, Helen is what's next for you. What are you working on next? And and we have the answer to that question already. So yeah, <laughs> just like... you have, um, the watchman cometh. And then the only, the last, last piece, which is going to come out in, um, September, August, 2020, um, timed on purpose, of course, <laughs> is, um, is going to be called Jack Kennedy, the president. And it's going to be my dad's tapes, the same thing like LBJ, mm-hmm. but this will be the White House years. I see. And oh. I thought it was important because I thought, especially as we face this election, which I mm-hmm. think is vitally important. Oh, people yes. People need to get out and vote, mm-hmm. um, not just complain, actually yep. vote. Um, but I think 
think that we need to see what what you know what we should be looking for in a real president. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and what you know what we should expect, and and you know which is not sort of made up reality TV nonsense. But you know, I'm not saying it has to be somebody you can't find another Jack Kennedy. But I think that you can see the outlines of what we should be looking for as as we look at this you know lineup of candidates. Right, right. And just I, here's my last question. This is officially my last question. I promise, Helen, and it's a quickie one. <laughs> do, do you have any record as to whether your dad, at any point, bumped into Stephanie Miller's dad, who, of course, was Bill Miller, Barry Goldwater's running mate in 1964? Oh, I met her sister at the at the thing, and I don't know. And it's funny because. Um, I thought she would really be interested in this book because there's so much about Goldwater in yeah, here. Yeah. And um and I took a lot of reporting from Rolly Evans and, and Bob Novak. But I didn't I'm gonna have to go back on the tapes and see if I find his name because she <laughs> yeah. asked me her sister asked me to, to check it out. So if I find something I'm gonna let you know. That would be an amazing thing if that actually happened, that meeting. Even if it was just for a couple of drinks somewhere on Connecticut Avenue. That would have been a know, great story. And, and my dad was very detailed. That's one thing, you know with these tapes you know they're incredibly detailed yeah. you know he he had a photographic memory he never wrote anything down um and so but it's just on the tapes he goes through you know places and people and who was doing what you know there are times you sort of go oh my lord yeah but now as i'm working on all this you know he comes up with these names you can track them back mm-hmm. so i that's why you never know so i'm going to see what i can dig up wonderful wonderful well helen thank you so much for your two hours of time I, I can't thank you thank you oh, enough how uh, can I and, tell you one funny LBJ story sure I, I'm always in for a another funny LBJ story <laughs> that now, sounds this good. Is very funny but I can't tell you for a fact this okay. is a story I've been told so, <laughs> so we have to know this is not from the tape okay <laughs> this is a story that has come down to us so I don't want to I just think it's a great story all right um, and you'll appreciate it because because you just appreciate these guys <laughs> But, you know, my dad and, and after, you know, my dad and LBJ would often at the end of the day, and he did this with, with the president as well, but he would mm. hang back and hang around the Oval Office and, you know, they'd discuss things and things like that. But LBJ would sort of get into these kind of dark moods. And so my dad would stay there and they would they would have a few pops. And a couple of times it went on for a while mm. and um, they'd sit around and, you know, on this particular night, um, my dad finally was like, look, I got, I got to go home. I'm going to be in trouble. I got to go home, you know. <laughs> and um, the president said, I'll take you home. And he said, um, no, you can't take me home. I mean, I'll just, you know, he had my dad as a driver and all that. The brother down, of course, they obviously had enough to drink. Yeah. So they head out, and he's going to give my dad a ride home. You know, and it's not a small entourage, as you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not like today, but it was still large. And they pull up into our neighborhood, which is, it's kind of late now. You know, everybody's got kids in the Where, where was the neighborhood? Where did, your, uh, where did your family live at that time? It, where in uh, the D.C. area? Um, they lived in, towards Bethesda. Off Massachusetts Avenue. Ah, the mean streets of Bethesda. I see. Yes, you know that area. It's it's a neighborhood, neighborhood. You know what I mean? Right, right. So, and it was not a high, you know, it was a nice house, but it was a neighborhood. And so they pull up, and the whole entourage, of course, they wake up the entire neighborhood, and they're both inebriated, as my mother said. (laughs) And they get to the door, and, you know, my father wouldn't have a key to the house if he had, you know, if he had a gun in his head, so he has to ring the bell, naturally. (laughs) And, um,. 
So my mother was not a happy camper, and she was not having it. She opened the door, and she looked at the two of them. She pointed, and she was a small person, but kind of fiery. You know, she was a great athlete. And um, she pointed at my father. She said, you, go upstairs. And then she pointed at the president of the United States and said, and you go home to Lady Bird now. And she slammed the door in his face. <laughs> That's so great. Oh, my God. You're probably the, the only person in the world who could boss LBJ around at that point, right? Well, that's what he was dumbfounded. He kept ringing the bell, and he was like, guinea, guinea. And my father being, my father said brave soul that he was. He knew, you know, my mother was in charge. He knew when he was licked. So he went up and he went to bed. He was <laughs> so And um, he just left him out there. Oh, my and, God. And, um, that was it, you know. And so oh, what a great story. I, I guess the president reminded my father several times because he just thought it was he thought it was a hilarious story yeah. to tell. You know, it right. got better. My father said it got better with each telling. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, this has been such a treat, Helen. Such an honor. And uh, you know, the next time you got something going on, if just please keep in touch, and uh, I'd love to have you on anytime. Oh, thank you, and I hope this was, uh, you know, I hope I wasn't boring you to death because uh, there's no, so many no, no, stories no, no. to tell, but you're, you're so wonderful to talk to you of great insight. No, no, never boring. Never, ever, ever boring. I could just, I, you know what, like I said, I could go another couple hours talking about the, all kinds of details we could get into. But I, I thank you so much for your time, and I'm looking forward to us uh, chatting again real soon. And same here, and um, and hopefully as soon as my box arrives, the books, I will send it your way with a signature. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to dig into launching LBJ. And then you have to tell me what you think. Email me and tell me what you think. Absolutely. I'll give you my honest opinion. Please do. Oh, All right. wonderful. Helen, thank you so much for your time. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, this is Lee Papa, host of AGD Podcast with the Rude Pundit. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love my show, where every week I talk about politics and interview funny, fascinating, and filthy people. Find it at sexyliberal.com and on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere else you get your podcasts.